Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. This month we uncover the ancient genome of a 16th century Spanish pig and investigate historical agriculture in the Nordic countries. Barley was domesticated about 10,000 years ago in the Fertile Crescent. It's since been a major crop, particularly in northern Europe, where due to its robust nature it's easily cultivated at the higher latitudes. Studying the distribution of barley's genetic diversity can tell us how it spread from its origin of domestication to other parts of the world where it's now cultivated, and also how it's been affected by selection as it's been moved around the different environments. Armed with some historical seeds and modern samples, plus the historical records of where barley's been traded around the Nordic countries, Jenny Hagenblad at Linköping University in Sweden and her team set out to produce a detailed geographic map of barley's population structure across Fenoscandia. What makes it difficult studying the phylogeography of domesticated crops like barley? One difficulty is you have two different phases of the development of modern crops. So you first have the domestication phase where these crops were originally domesticated and then you have during the past hundred years the development of the modern crop species. If you use modern crop cultivars it can be difficult to actually see phylogeographic patterns because they have been bred to each other and crossed to each other in, in sort of planned manner and that will of course influence the genome and the genetic content and that can mask phylogeographic pattern that existed before uh, modern plant improvement. And so if you looked at the phylogeographic structuring of modern barley now, what would it look like? There has been some studies by other people and it has shown that the patterns that you can see, you can primarily see a division between the two major types of barley, the two-row barley and the six-row barley. And within those types, you can see some phylogeographic patterns on a continental scale. So you can sort of see some patterns differing between Europe and Asia, but not really any finer scale patterns. And so it was a finer scale phylogeographic pattern that you and your team were seeking. Tell me about the samples you used. How did you get around this problem of the big signal from modern crop improvement? So in order to have material that would not show the, the modern crop improvement, we decided to use landrace material. The landraces are non-improved varieties that were traditionally cultivated. And they are usually very locally adapted and they also are distinguishable from each other. So we expected them to still have these phylogeographic signatures from the original colonization or introduction in, into the different areas of cultivation. And where do you find this landrace material then? Is this just growing in people's gardens? 
No, they are not cultivated any longer to any big extent. They might be in, in certain areas, but primarily if you want to study land race material, you have to turn to gene banks where they are preserved as, as a genetic resource for plant improvement. And another interesting thing about this study is that you used another type of land race material, and that was seeds collected in the late 19th century. Tell me about those specimens. Yes, during the late 19th century, of course, agriculture was very big, an important part of the economy, and in particular up here in the north. And there were different exhibitions, actually, where seeds were on display to show the different types of crops that were cultivated in different parts of the country. And during this time, it was tradition that during these exhibitions, they wanted lots of samples with lots of seeds. So the visitor to these exhibitions would be impressed by the number of samples that they have. And some of these exhibition materials have been preserved and and are still saved at various museums across the Nordic countries. There were different reasons why you wanted to use these historical seeds. One of them was that in Sweden, Norway, Finland and Denmark, we don't really have a very good collection of living land race material, primarily because the land race material had already been replaced by modern cultivars by the time people realized that this is something that needs to be preserved. So we have very poor representativity of living land race material up here in Northern Europe. Another reason was that we know when these seeds were collected, we know where they were collected, in many cases down to the actual farm where they were collected. So we have a very good provenance. And the provenance for the living land race materials in the gene banks is sometimes a bit questionable. We don't really know what has happened with them during the time they have been stored with the seed companies or with the gene bank. But by using these historical seeds, we knew that we would get bona fide land races as they were at the time when they were in active cultivation. Okay, so with both of these different kinds of land race material, you really set out to perform a high-resolution study of the phylogeographic structuring of barley across all of the Nordic countries. Yes, we choose 40 different accessions of barley. And what we also made sure was that we included several individuals of each accession because we wanted the population level or the accession level diversity of the samples as well. So we included six individuals from each accession that we genotyped. And then we genotyped these on a 384 single nucleotide polymorphism assay. And as far as we know, that was actually the first study where they did this type of genotyping on this scale in historical samples. And so we hope that by using quite a few accessions, several individuals from each accession and quite a few markers, that would give us the power to actually look at much more fine-scale phylogeographic patterns than had been shown before. Okay, so let's hear about the results then. What can you now tell us about the historical spread of barley in these Nordic countries? Well, it seems like the spread of, of barley has been primarily going in an east-west direction rather than a north-south direction. So originally we expected that, well, perhaps barley was sort of brought from the south northwards and we would see signals of that. But the thing that we can see is really that the genetic diversity is, is structured on the latitudinal scale. So accessions from the north are very similar to each other, regardless of whether they are from Norway, from Sweden or from Finland. And what does that tell you about the responsible factors behind the phylogeographic structuring then of barley? So the the east-west structuring to me suggests that there's a very strong effect of local adaptation. So that even if seeds are sort of brought up from the south and we know that 
farmers from southern and central Sweden were encouraged to move north and uh, take up cultivation in northern Sweden. So it seems like even if people did bring their own seed or seed were traded from the south towards the north, it seems like only the adapted genotypes were able to be cultivated successfully and those were the ones that were kept in cultivation. And did your genetic results match up with the historical documents that you have about historical seed trade and seed movements? No, interestingly, there was actually quite a large difference between what we found and what we could see in the historical records. So, For example, we know that within Norway, who uh, was under Danish rule for a very long while, there was a seed trade embargo. So seeds were only allowed to be traded within Norway and Denmark and not with Sweden. And in spite of this, we see that there is a very strong similarity in the genetic diversity, primarily in in, uh, northern Sweden, Finland and and Norway. So that suggests that perhaps seeds were brought across from Sweden and into Norway. And we know that this was the case, that Swedish farmers would take the seeds to Norway to be milled for, for flour. So maybe seeds were traded at the same time, in spite of this trade embargo. We also know that there have been seed shipments from Estonia to northern Sweden in in times of crop failure, but we can't really see any signals of this in our results. What's next then? Are you going to do more domesticated crop plants that you're going to work on? Uh, Well, we actually have one project where we're going to try to look at the phylogeographic patterns in the far north of Fennoscandia and to see if we can see structuring in even finer detail. We also have a very interesting project where we're going further back in time and we're analysing some archaeological specimens of barley from the Canary Islands, and that is specimens that were grown there by the indigenous Guanche people, and we're going to compare those with barley from areas in in Africa and Europe where the Guanche people might have come from originally. So we're trying to see the phylogeographic pattern of the origin of the Guanche barley. Oh, well, I look forward to your next heredity paper. (laughs) Yeah, well, if you want it. We have to do the work first, though. That was Jenny Hagenblad. Now, sticking with ancient DNA, we move swiftly on to historical pig genomes. Miguel Perez Enciso from the Autonomous University of Barcelona and his team got his hands on a well-preserved 16th-century pig from an abandoned castle in Spain. This sample is from a critical period in pig breeding history. It was buried at a time when American colonisation was just getting started. It was before the large-scale crossing with Asian pigs, and it was before the intense artificial selection of the 20th century. Miguel and his team wanted to use this sample to discover the relationship between this ancient pig, modern Iberian pigs, and the Creole pigs of the Americas. Here's Miguel. I have always been interested in livestock breeding, And I think domestication and especially artificial selection is a great experiment, but in a very short scale. It's almost like experimental evolution because I think it's really beautiful how livestock reacts so quickly to artificial selection. It seems that the genome plasticity is endless in the sense that even after so many years of selection, still animals, well, and domestic plants as well, they keep responding to selection. Tell me about this sample, because I'm really intrigued. Tell me about where you found this sample. The sample was taken from a castle from the Renaissance, from the 16th century. It was abandoned. Characteristics of these remnants is that they are very well preserved. 
So apparently by the end of the 16th century that all the stuff, all the livestock that was in the, in the castle was dumped into this pit because the castle was going to be abandoned at that time. So they were buried in a very short period of time between 1520 and 1550 and at the latest the 1570s and this has been done also using ceramics, coins and other kind of archaeological remnants. Okay, so you excavated this ancient Spanish female pig and you know where she lived and you know fairly accurately when she lived. What exactly were you trying to find out then with this ancient DNA? Most of the studies so far with ancient DNA has been addressing very old events like domestication that occurred about 8,000 years ago for the pig species. So these pigs provide like a sample which is clearly domestic and it is before uh, strong artificial selection. The other interesting aspect is that it is contemporary of the pigs that were being taken by the Spanish and Portuguese colonizers to the Americas. We were trying to see what was the relationship between this ancient pig and modern Iberian pigs and the American Creole pigs. I am interested also in the events that predated artificial selection. And finally, the third aspect is that the modern pig breeds, as we know them, they had been introduced with Chinese pigs. So these pigs were being taken by primarily English and Dutch colonizers from Asia to Europe, where they were crossed with the local pigs in Europe. So what we find actually, maybe it is not surprising, but until you don't do it, you don't know. The ancient pig that we find is very, very similar to the modern Iberian pig that we found today in Spain. This is interesting because it shows also that the traditional Iberian pig has remained more or less stable, say, genetically. And that's also interesting because it means that the Iberian pig never admixed with the Asian pigs. Yes, that we know because the introduction from China into Europe, it happened later than the 16th century when this ancient sample was living. So because they are similar and then the Asian pigs left a very strong trace in modern pigs that were interbred with Asia, about 30% of sort of the genome in international pig breeds if of Chinese uh, origin. So from that then we know that the Iberian pig really is not introduced with Chinese germplasm because it's very similar to the ancient sample and to local wild boar as well. Okay, and were you able to tell anything about any admixture with the wild boar population at the time? Yeah, there was already evidence that the Iberian pig was sharing many loci with the wild boar and using some statistics that were used also to identify that the Neanderthal had been admixed with the human species we find that actually the Iberian pig and the ancient sample as well have been admixing with wild boar in about the same amount. So the ancient pig is as similar to the wild boar as the Iberian pig is. Now, Columbus took some pigs from Spain to America, you mentioned in your paper. How have they changed from that ancient Spanish sample? What we do know is that the pig was important for Spanish colonizers so normally they release pigs in an island and then they left them there to have meat when they were coming back. But it seems to be that there are very little similarity between modern Iberian pigs and the local pigs that are now living in the Americas, probably because they have been crossed with many other breeds. So in short, 
there is little genetic similarity between the American pigs that Columbus were taking to the America at that date and the pigs that are living there now. Did you have any problems working with the ancient DNA? Oof, yes, a lot. You know, when an animal or, or an organism dies, the DNA starts degrading very, very soon. So the DNA is highly fragmented. Then the DNA is contaminated with DNA from other microorganisms that are living on the remnants of the bone and so on, contamination from humans, from other animals. Also, the DNA suffers some chemical transformation, so there is some changes in the base pairs, so you have to correct for that. Is this the final chapter then on the history of domestic pigs, or are you looking for more ancient samples? What, what's next? Okay, so now we are trying to sequence a few more samples, maybe a bit older, maybe from the Roman times, depend on what is the, the quality of the DNA, because we are going to do some trials. We have new protocols in cooperation with the group who is working in ancient DNA lab. So there will be a, maybe one more chapter, but there are other groups who are working on this as well. So I'm pretty sure that there will be many, many more stories. And that's it for this episode. See you again next month for a fresh instalment of the Heredity Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.